a lot of it is housing costs and a lot of it is poor social services. Is Seattle worse than most of the country? Yes. Seattle has um, a homelessness problem that is in the top five nationally. Um, what is unusual um, about West Coast cities of Los Angeles and um, Seattle and San Francisco to a certain extent, but less so, certainly San Jose now, Sacramento, is that there's most of the people that are, that are homeless are outside. That's Jonathan Martin, and I had the opportunity to interview him at a civic boot camp sponsored by the City Club of Seattle, and that was uh, last week, and uh, he was talking about the homelessness crisis, and we're going to delve into that in this edition of Voices of Experience. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. And again, today we are going to address the homelessness crisis in Seattle and King County. And uh, Eric Burris and I made a pledge. We're going to solve the problem by the end of this show. Right, Eric? <laughs> I don't know if I can uh, agree with that one. It is such a complex problem that uh, we might need 35 minutes, and we only have the, the 30. So. Well, see, we would have done it, except you're going to cut me off. <laughs> Sorry. That's, that's the rules here at the station. But I think we can all agree on there is a crisis, and I believe I am speaking for many when I speak in those terms. But um, that's about where the consensus ends as to what, causes it, and how we can solve it. Now, the Seattle City Club hosted a civic boot camp on homelessness last week in Pioneer Square, and about 50 people attended. And the speakers talked about the history of homelessness in Seattle, some of the current topics surrounding homelessness. There was actually some site visits to some shelters, which I was a part of. And then uh, what corporations are doing about homelessness to try to reduce it, and uh, then we had a visit from the Seattle Police Department who actually goes out into the shelters every day, and they talked about what they see. So just even from the subjects we covered, you can see how complex it is. And um, again, we're just going to take a little stab about some of the issues today. And uh, I'm also going to have an interview that I had with uh, Jonathan Martin. As I said, uh, we're going to play that in just a few moments. And then uh, uh, Garen Walter, Walton, he's the director of recovery at the Bread of Life Mission in Pioneer Square and talking about some of the people he's seen come through the program and what they're doing now, some success stories. So I think that's important to have that because all is not lost here. Some people can come through this, live on the streets, go into shelters, and then come out of it and have some pretty good lives. So I wanted to leave that because uh, it's more of a positive type of look at what we can do with homelessness. Now, uh, also, someone did call Voices of Experience about a month ago when I touched on the subject, and she left her thoughts on um, homelessness in Seattle and what she thinks we should pay attention to, and I will play that later in the program. And in between my interview uh, with Jonathan and uh, Garen, I also am going to play an interview, not an interview I had, but uh, Bill Maher, Real Time, which airs Friday nights, he uh, talked about conspiracies, and uh, I wanted to play that to uh, kind of give another direction to the show today. So you're listening to Voices of Experience. Again, my name is Paul Casey, uh, here with uh, Eric Burris, and we're going to be here for the next half hour. If you would, 
like to call in at any point. We're a little tight in time, but if you hear something you'd like to talk about, you can uh, call us here in the studio, and that number is 425-373-5527, or you can call one 298 5569 Back with my interview with Jonathan Martin in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Jonathan Martin is going to join us, as I just said, and this is a recording I had on Friday with him. He is the editor of the Seattle Times Project for Homelessness. He's a University of Washington graduate and Knight Wallace Fellow at the University of Michigan. Jonathan lives in Seattle. My first question to Jonathan was, what does he think the major factors are that have led to the homelessness crisis we're in right now? A lot of his housing costs and a lot of his poor social services. Is Seattle worse than most of the country? Yes. Seattle has um, a homelessness problem that is in the top five nationally. Um, what is unusual um, about the West Coast cities of Los Angeles and um, Seattle and San Francisco to a certain extent, but less so, certainly San Jose now, Sacramento, is that there's most of the people that are, that are homeless are outside. Uh, New York and um, Washington, D.C. have large homeless populations, but they have laws that require shelter to be given. So they have gigantic shelter systems uh, where people are inside. So. Seattle's is, um, homelessness numbers are worse than most other cities. And then compounding that, most of the people, an unusual number of people in a national context, are living outside in, in tents. What city or cities do you think are handling this problem in the best way? There's a bunch of different reasons, drivers of homelessness. Um, so I don't think that there's any one city that is doing like one thing all great. Uh, we've seen cities that have had success in reducing certain populations of homelessness. People, for example, you know, um, cities in Louisiana that have really driven down their numbers of veterans who are homeless. Um, you know, Utah had some success for a while of driving down the numbers of chronically homeless people. Uh, and one of the secret one of the secrets seems to be a level of coordination uh, among the different entities that are providing services. Seattle has a fairly fractured model that is uh, where their services and funding are spread among various, uh, several different agencies, and there's not a single person in charge. So you, that's one of the commonalities you see in you know, cities that are doing driving down certain portions of the homelessness population. There's a real coordination level. What are a few other things that you think that Seattle could do to bring down the numbers? There's no shortage of, of uh, studies on, that are sitting on shelves with great ideas on them. Um, you know, one of them is uh, treatment on demand, um, immediate, um, timely, comprehensive treatment for, um, particularly for opioids, um, but for a whole range of drugs. We do that on a little bit, not a lot. There's been a real shortages of like detox beds and that kind of thing, we haven't gotten serious about it. And that, again, goes to the fracturedness of it. State funds most of it. King County runs some of it. Seattle doesn't have any role with it. And so 
there's not a single person in charge of that part of it. Um, I think that um, certainly um, they could f try and address building affordable housing in a way that's cheaper. There's a lot of discussions about that right now. We know that there's a shortage of people seeking to leave the tent camps. If they want to leave tent camps, they want to get into shelter, and they want to go someplace. There's a real shortage of uh, places that are subsidized and affordable for them to live. Um, we have a model also that is very expensive at building long-term housing. There's a lot of discussion right now about using modular housing or container housing, that kind of thing, to bring that down. Other cities are doing that. Vancouver, B.C. is doing that in a big way. Seattle has a single project that it's sort of monkeying around with. So those are a couple of things I think that can make a difference. One thing that I felt that uh, Ed Murray did very well in the beginning of his administration with the minimum wage, mm -hmm. he brought all the stakeholders together mm -hmm. around a table and said, solve this thing or let's figure right. this thing out and uh, among labor groups, business, and it seemed to work. I mean, they, he said, you know, the white smoke came out, this is how we're going to do it and, right. it, and it happened. Is that too simple for something like this? Well, getting the negotiators for something like the minimum wage together is simpler. There's really a couple of key constituencies, people that are paying the wage and the union folks that are arguing for the wage. Um, with homelessness, you have you have a constituency that's very interested in uh, mental health treatment and chemical dependency treatment and affordable housing providers, people that are concerned about people being homeless because of criminal justice involvement. Bringing together all of those people together to unite around like a common theme it doesn't seem possible to me. Um, and it's, it certainly has not been practical or proven. We just had a one, this one-table initiative called by Jenny Durkin and Dow Constantine and the mayor of Auburn that didn't really produce anything. And it was diffuse, it was kind of squishy. Um, so I think that if there is going to be progress on an area, it feels to me like there has to be a real prioritization of which problem within the homelessness system we're going to solve. I, I think that um, there's a, the most energy right now feels to me around family homelessness. Paul Allen, I mean, uh, sorry, Jeff Bezos, uh, just gave a billion dollars yesterday um, to help solve family homelessness. Um, there's a lot of corporate, you know, corporate philanthropic interest in solving that. So if you're going to make real progress, I think that that might be one place that if there was a concerted, directed, coordinated push bringing together all, all, the, all the parties, um, that's possible. Are you optimistic we can, let's say, not solve the problem, but make a major bend in it going forward, let's say, the next five to ten years? I love Seattle. I've lived here for most of the last three decades, third-generation Seattleite, and I'm really worried. I don't see either the will um, or the level of cooperation that would be necessary to put a serious dent in this. And you couple that with the fact that Seattle has won the global tech lottery, um, and as a city that is getting massively wealthy um, but in, unaffordable for people that are not software engineers. So I'm, I'm worried. Jonathan Martin, and again, he is the editor of the Seattle Times Project Homelessness in the, uh, again, the Seattle area, and has been doing that for a very long time. Not that I need to sum up anything that he said necessarily, but because uh, he's so articulate about the subjects, but couple things I wanted to call out, and one of the things that he said at the very end is that Seattle has won the global tech lottery and that the cost of housing has gone up so much because of that. And uh, 
to reinforce that point, there was an article in the Seattle Times this week, and it had to do with there are more people earning $200,000 and above in the city of Seattle than are earning less than $50,000. Now, that's a pretty staggering statistic. Just want to, again, sum up a few things he had to say, and one of them is I've talked to people about this problem, and I've been to the Bay Area or Los Angeles and New York, and my perception is it's bad everywhere, but, you know, is it? And I asked him that question, and I said, is is it worse in Seattle? And uh, his answer to that is, if you think it is, you are correct. So I got educated on that. I think one of his key points, and I hear this more and more all the time, is that we are very fragmented here in terms of decisions. There's way too many entities trying to make a decision. I'm going to really try to get into that more and see how many different people are really vested in this. There are some people who attended this conference on Friday put on by the City Club, and one of the things that came to mind is because of that. There were people there from family homelessness, as he mentioned. There are uh, single mothers with children, single mothers without children. So there's a lot of entities, and he is very pessimistic that we are going to bring these entities together. And uh, one thing he did mention that I know that other cities have done and that's treatment on demand. And uh, so anyhow, that's some of the things that uh, Jonathan had to talk about. We're going to be coming up with an interview pretty soon with Garen Walton, and he's the director of recovery, recovery excuse me, of the Bread of Life Mission located in Seattle's Pioneer Square. But first, I would like to just change the uh, flow of the show right now and go with a person that I have great respect for, and his name is Bill Maher. He's the commentary of the time, maybe the best way I can put it, Will Rogers of the time. And he was talking about conspiracies on his show uh, on HBO, Real Time with Bill Maher. And uh, this is what he had to say. Conspiracy theories have to go back to what they used to be. Fun little stories we would tell each other when we were high. (laughs) Space aliens crashed in Roswell. Hitler escaped to Argentina. Elvis is alive and working at the IHOP. That's what conspiracy theories used to be. But now they're the ideology of the Republican Party. I never liked Rush Limbaugh, but I would take a return to 90s era ditto heads any day. Because it turned out that Rush was really just a gateway drug. (laughs) To which they eventually built up a tolerance and then needed something stronger. That was Glenn Beck, which led to Alex Jones. And now, Republicans, you're the Alex Jones party. There is literally nothing too stupid and conspiratorial that you will not swallow. Hillary running a child sex ring out of a pizza parlor. Sounds right. Obama's birth certificate, fake. This week, we found out that 83% of Republicans either definitely believe or are unsure whether 5 million people voted illegally in the last election. Something Trump just completely made up. This isn't about ideology anymore. Trump has none anyway. When he decided to run, he didn't brush up on conservatism by studying Buckley and Reagan. And this isn't about actual Republicans either. Those guys are gone. George Bush the first quit the NRA in 1995 when some gun nuts called the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms jackbooted thugs. Bush said it deeply offended his sense of decency and honor. But when Alex Jones says children fake their own deaths at Sandy Hook, it doesn't deter Trump from telling him, your reputation is amazing, I'll not 
I will not let you down. The latest thing, Trump, is this nonsense about the FBI spying on him. There was no spy. It was just the Bureau checking out whether someone on the Trump campaign was communicating with Russia, based on the tiny fact that everybody in the Trump campaign was communicating with Russia. It's what the FBI does. Investigation. It's in their name. But Spygate, there's literally nothing. And that is so alarming, because one way we measure the health of a society is by how conspiratorial it is. Communist countries, Arab dictatorships, those places, you could always say, sell anything because there was no trust in the institutions. Republicans, that's what you're doing to this country. The only answer is that more sane people have to vote than insane people in every election. So tell your sane friends that the midterms are the most important election of their lives and tell your conservative friends that climate scientists are working with the Clintons to slip a chemical into the air ducts at polling places that will turn everyone who votes gay. That's Bill Maher with Real Time on HBO. All right, again, that's Bill Maher, and he was uh, commenting just, oh gosh, about two months ago on conspiracy theories. One comment to add to that, he did talk about Alex, Alex Jones for a moment. And my thought on this is that imagine how many people that it would have taken for people to be in on the conspiracy for the cover-up of which Alex Jones is claiming that it never happened. Not only the kids in the school who survived, the administrators, the police, the media, thousands of people, literally, would have had to be in that cover-up. And you don't think anybody would come forth at some point and say, hey, something happened here we want to let the America know about. You see, it makes absolutely no sense. But what's scary are how many millions of people buy this. And number two, I've read that how many people who have lost their children in that horrible, horrible day being harassed, having to move out because these crazies are calling them and calling them liars and I read one family's had to move seven or eight times because of this. And, and it's just ridiculous. And I really don't know a solution here because they all operate under the umbrella of free speech. But I certainly think this is a major problem that we have in this country. And we've got to find a way out of it because there's so much disinformation coming about. So anyhow, that's my comment on that. I'd uh, like to get on with the show Back to Homelessness. And that is we had someone call in, not as a direct result of this show, but one a couple months ago when I mentioned it, and she talked about her view on homelessness. Hey, Paul, just heard your message about homelessness and what the problem is. And I wanted to give you my two cents that uh, while we see homelessness as the problem, the problem really goes much deeper than that. It's the consciousness and it's the way that we think about humans in this country. And I think that homelessness is just an outpicturing of a deeper sense of all of us that we really haven't connected to our true home within ourselves because once we do we will understand that human lives matter that people matter that we will care for each other more than we care about making money and uh, putting a value on land that people can or cannot live on and what that means so while we can come up with all sorts of housing options and payment options for homelessness it's really more about the way we collectively see humans and our value on this planet. And when we can understand that, that human lives are the most valuable thing, that every person that lives has a contribution to make in some way, and we can honor that contribution, 
then we will begin to start to shift some of these major problems in our country. Thanks for allowing me to give my opinion. Hope you have a great day. That was a uh, listener again from a couple of months ago. Very, very good comments about why we're at the place we are and why we have to care because, again, these people matter. And that is a great lead into the interview I had with Garen Walton. Again, he's the director of recovery at the uh, Bread of Life Mission located in Seattle's Pioneer Square. He has had a long history on focusing on people and their recovery, and he had some very interesting observations about that. He actually served in the California prison system as a mentor and, and someone who really helped in this area for many years before he moved up to Seattle to take over this position, again, at the uh, Bread of Life mission in Seattle. And uh, that's one of the things that lives do matter, and some of the people who go through these programs, you think they may be hopeless. Well, I asked him a couple of examples of people who may not be so hopeless and how their life is turning out. He was a chemical engineer and uh, had a lot of um, disappointing times in his life and it drove him to drinking and then starting to use drugs. Um, What happened after that, he basically stopped going to work, marriage uh, fell apart, and separated from, you know, his wife and children and divorced and he ended up, you know, bouncing around from town to town and he accepted being homeless and being on drugs and the lifestyle that came with that. When he came into the program I was working at and he successfully completed it, but in the in the process of and completing it, you know, He's college educated. He could do a lot of things and stuff together. But he did so well, he became an intern as an employee. And from there, because we were, you know, we were chaplains, he became the first chaplain from someone coming out of the program. It had never happened before. And, you know, even before I got there, they had never done that. And this was the first time that someone was actually ushered in as being a chaplain. So he was accepted as an equal, as one of us. And, uh, you know, he got married and, you know, he kept going with his life. And then the other one, uh, he successfully graduated and uh, he went to a Bible college and he graduated that. But what he did, he went out and he bought him two trucks, put his money together got two trucks so he currently today he owns two trucks and he drives cross country and that's his income not on the streets you know quite successful in what he's doing so there are people that do this another guy same thing had been in prison for i think 15 years of prison and uh, spent a lot of time with him working through rehabilitation turned his life around, repaired his marriage with his wife, and bought two trucks himself. And uh, he's bought, you know, he he owns 
a couple of homes in two different states and uh, you know he's hired drivers to drive his trucks so people are doing they just need that opportunity and as they're getting the skills things start to click you just don't it's not on us to know when but at least it's happening it must be uh, really satisfying to see that it is it makes your work you know rewarding and then you just you go home and you feel good and you know when things get hard you go like you draw back on things like that sure it is valuable it is working instead of you know you're saying see and that's what i say about anything that in this kind of work you can't look at it with certain eyes you have to you don't know what's happening inside of a person even though they could be resisting but what i take resistance as i roll with resistance and i know something's happening because that's why they're resisting in the first place a lot of psychology here (laughs) (laughs) i bet you know you know a hell of a lot about a lot of things on that and you have to because people are very interesting creatures and we don't know what traumatic experience caused you to accept something that's harming you and you keep doing it though you know it's harming you and there's no benefit in it there's only like maybe a quick pleasure with it but they call it short-term gain long-term pain so you you say like but why do you keep investing your time and energy in this when it's destroying you and that's the very hard intricate thing to try to understand but yet when, when it's time to go get it to change and you start putting certain things out there and seeing what they bite on. And then here comes time. And you're saying, wow, I, of all the people, I didn't think that individual would respond, but they do. So that's why I say I never teach and put my eyes in, on judgment on folks because I don't know who, who is going to click on and who's going to not think about it. But sometimes, also, it happens later on. It, it can go down the road and the person can come back here and say they didn't graduate the program. They can come back and say, thank you guys. I know I didn't finish here. I went somewhere else. But what you guys told me, it stayed with me. And I, and I realized I had to go somewhere else. My pride didn't bring me back, but I put my pride down to come back and give you guys a thank you. And we've gotten that also. Darren mm-hmm. Walton, and again, he's the Director of Recovery for the Bread of Life Mission in Pioneer Square. That's all the time we have for this edition of Voices of Experience. I would like to, again, thank Jonathan Martin, Darren Walton, Bill Maher for being on the show, and, of course, Eric Burris, we're pulling this all together. You can also stream this show if you just go to Google, just uh, input KKNW, then on the page, archives will come up. Click on to that. And at the bottom of that page with all the radio shows here on KKNW, Voices of Experience is at the very bottom. And you can hear all the shows going back a year and a half on various subjects. So again, my name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. If you have any subjects you'd like to talk about, you can call me at 206-459-5536. My emphasis is on public affairs, travel, fitness, education, with a special, special emphasis on entrepreneurship. Have a great rest of the week.